Good morning, everyone. I wish I could be with you this morning, but I tested positive for COVID on Friday. I'd been feeling under the weather for a while and actually tested on Wednesday and it came out negative. But I didn't feel any better over the next couple of days, so we tested me again on Friday. And even though my symptoms aren't that bad, I was positive. And we just thought the wisest thing for me to do would be record this weekend's sermon. And my hope is that everything will be fine by next weekend and I'll be back to join you. So let's get started. This is the eighth week in our Family Tree series. And throughout this series, we've been looking at transitional moments in the lives of some of the best-known members of our spiritual family tree. And just as a reminder, the first six weeks of our series, we looked at people whose stories of life change were all found in the Old Testament, people like Abraham and Hagar and Jacob. And last week, during our celebration of our Care Center's 10th anniversary, we looked at the first member of our family tree that we find in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter. And I must tell you that the response from last week's message was, uh, shall I say, unusually robust. Um, in a positive way. Now, I'm unsure if the reason for the affirming response was that the message was only like 12 minutes long, or that it was actually the content of my sermon, but either way, it was an encouraging response, and I thank you. And now this morning, I have to start out by saying something that we've been saying, I think, almost every week in this series, something that's especially true today, and that is that there is a great deal of information, a great deal more information given to us in the Bible about today's family member than we could ever discuss in one sermon. You see, today's member of our spiritual family is the Apostle Paul, and not only does his story take up like half of the book of Acts, but he wrote 13 letters to the churches that are all in the New Testament, and we simply aren't going to be able to be thorough, if you will, on the life of Paul. But we have to keep in mind that our focus in this series is on the great moments of transition in the lives of the people we're talking about. And Paul's moment of great change, I would use that word, was as profound as anybody else we find in the entire Bible. If you want to see somebody who changes from living his life one way, and then he changes to living his life a completely different way, Paul is your man. And we find this transition in Paul's life in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, I don't have a house Bible here at my house. I mean, I have a house Bible, but it's my own, and it's not the same one as is in the seats. So they're going to have to put up on the screen what page that's on. But everybody needs to turn to Acts 9, verse 1. And while you're turning, I want to welcome everybody who's watching online. We're glad you're with us today. And I hope you're turning to Acts 9 in your Bibles there. So um, while you're turning, I want to tell you something unusual about today's passage. This moment of great change in Paul's life was so important to Luke, who was the author of the book of Acts, that he recorded it not once, and not twice, but three different times in the book of Acts. Now, it is true that each 
of the three times that we read this story of transition in Paul's life, we get a few different details, but each version is essentially the same. And I know you've probably heard me say this before, but anytime you get something that's given to us in the Bible three times in exactly the same way, that means we better pay attention. So we all need to pay attention as we get in to the first verse of chapter 9 together. Oh, oh, I just want you to know that Saul was first introduced to the story of the book of Acts a bit earlier in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he was named as someone who was present when an earlier follow, an early follower of Jesus named Stephen was stoned to death. It says he was there and he approved of the stoning. And then in chapter 8, uh, Luke tells us that Saul was traveling house to house, dragging men and women out of their houses and putting them in prison and just for following Jesus. This is what he was up to. And so that's why when chapter 9 begins, it starts out like we all know who Saul or Paul is. And in verse 1, it says this, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Now, one thing before we go any further about Paul or Saul um, first, the reason that he's sometimes called Saul and sometimes called Paul isn't because he changed his name, okay? Saul was born into a very observant Jewish family in the city of Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey on the southern coast of Turkey. And like all good Jews, he was given a Hebrew name. His, name was, his Hebrew name was Saul, and he was named after the very first king of Israel, Saul. But here's the deal. Saul's family, they were all Roman citizens. And this would have been unusual for a Jewish family, and it would have been a high honor for them to have Roman citizenship. And as a Roman citizen, Saul was also given a three-part Latin name. I mean, we still do that. My name is Timothy Paul Ayers. I have three parts. We only know that, that Saul's Gentile or Roman name was Paul. So it was very common for a Roman citizen to have two official names, one for his background and one for him being a citizen. And what we find in the Bible is this. When Paul is interacting with Jewish people, he's called Saul. And when he's interacting with Gentile people, he's called Paul. And almost everybody in today's story is Jewish. Well, I think everybody in today's story is Jewish, and so he's going to be called Saul throughout the whole passage. And when I say he was born into an observant Jewish family, that was a bit of an understatement. His family, even though they lived about 600 miles away from Jerusalem, and they lived in a very Greek-speaking world, we know that Paul was raised in his home to both read and speak Hebrew. He was called a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And we also know that they sent him all the way to Jerusalem at a very early age to study under one of the most prominent Jewish scholars at the time, a man named Gamaliel. And while he was studying under Gamaliel, Gamaliel in Jerusalem, 
we know that he even became a Pharisee. Now, I know that we have a terrible opinion of Pharisees now. The word Pharisee is synonymous with hypocrite to us these days. But the truth is, Pharisees did not have that sort of a reputation at that time in Paul's day. The Pharisees were a group of men, about 5,000 of them, and they had all taken a vow to do everything they could to live holy lives. And for the most part, with most people in the world at the time, they had a good reputation as common men. They were not part of the elite at all. They were common men who were doing their very best to understand and obey God's word to them. And Saul being a Pharisee meant he was about as serious about his faith as a Jewish man could be, and to a serious, highly educated, observant Jew, an a Pharisee at that time? This new religious, oh, he thought of it as a cult called the Way, that was claiming that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and that he'd come from heaven to establish God's kingdom, and that he'd been crucified by the Romans, and that God had raised him from the dead, all of that sounded to Saul like the most dangerous, sacrilegious heresy imaginable. And this is why we read that Saul was uttering threats with every breath and eager to kill the Lord's followers. He thought this new message about some dead Galilean charlatan magician named Jesus was from the pit of hell. And so we read this. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters asking for their cooperation, oh, letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, two quick things. The Romans, a number of years ago, had given permission to the Jewish leadership to arrest and try and convict any people that they thought were breaking the law. But the Romans stipulated that the only time that Jewish religious leaders could arrest other people for religious crimes was if they had a letter from the high priest. And this letter, it had to go through a big process to get this letter, and so what it did was it made it, it kept those numbers of arrests for religious crimes to a minimum. But Paul got one from the high priest. And also we know from history that a good number of Jewish Christians had fled from Jerusalem to Damascus due to the persecution from people like Paul that they were bringing on Jewish Christians. And the reason they'd fled to Damascus was that it was a highly Jewish city. Josephus has a lot to say about this. I don't have much time to, I don't have the time to talk about all that he says about it, but what we do know is that there were thousands and thousands of Jews living in Damascus at this time. And that, that meant there were many, many synagogues, and those synagogues we know were run by men, they were led by men 
who were glad to do what the high priest had asked them to do, and that was find Christians among their synagogues and turn them over to Paul. This trip from Jerusalem to Damascus was 250 miles. It probably took 12 days to get there, but it was a trip that Saul was ready to make because he thought he was doing exactly what God would want a serious Jewish Pharisee to do. And then when we read and in, in on we read, he was a, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. Any time a light like this that shines down from heaven is mentioned in the Bible, it implies that the glory of God, God's overpowering presence, has arrived. And the Greek here also suggests clearly that this was a sudden and very unexpected light, so much so that it knocked Saul down. Look at verse he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Oh, by the way, anytime somebody gets called out by God with two names, it means God is up to something serious. And we see this frequently. Moses, Moses. Uh, Samuel, Samuel. But God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Two things. This overwhelming divine light from heaven, which again in the Bible is always a sign of God's presence, is now being associated with the presence of Jesus. I can't help but tell you that this implies a significant connection between Jesus and God the Father. And did you notice that Jesus took Paul, Saul's, sorry, I'm going to get that mixed up a lot, but he took Saul's persecution of the believers very personally. Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He didn't say, I am Jesus, and you're messing with my disciples. He took it very personally. And then what he says, he's not messing around at all. He gets right to it, and he gives Saul some new marching orders. He says, now get up. By the way, the word that gives us get up is the same word that's used to translate the word rise up, as in rising from the dead, which is what Saul didn't believe about Jesus. But he says, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. Now, just think about all this for a minute. Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest Jewish men and women because they were claiming that Jesus was the Son of God and that he'd been crucified, and that he'd died, but that he'd been raised from the dead by God. And Saul had suddenly found out they were right. They were right. He'd just come face to face with Jesus. 
And his new orders from Jesus were to go on into Damascus just like he'd been planning. But when he got there, he was just to wait. But now he's blind. And he has time to sit and think about things without any distractions and think he does. Look at verse 9. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. <laughs> I bet he was praying to him. Okay, um, he says, I have shown him a vision of a man named, named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Now, I love these next details. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, I'm betting that when Ananias heard that Saul was going to have to suffer for Jesus, that pleased him a little bit. Um, some uh, what goes around, comes around stuff is happening here. Verse 17 says, So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. Can you imagine how hard that would have been for him to call him brother? But anyway, he says, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them and change to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, you talk about a transformation. Like I said earlier, I don't think there's any other place in the Bible where a person changes so dramatically being, from being somebody that we wouldn't want to find on our spiritual family tree to being someone we're all happy as a spiritual relative. And it all happened because Saul came face to face with Jesus. And my thought is this, that all of Saul's learning over the years in the Scriptures and all of his training in the law and all of his practicing the commands of God, all of his knowledge about all of these things that were Jewish, they all came together in this one moment and suddenly everything made sense and it all cycled around Jesus. And this is why he could later 
write with such confidence to his fellow believers in Corinth. Listen to what he wrote. He said, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news. And it is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. And he's talking Old Testament when he says Scriptures here. And he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. Again, this is the good news. He knew it to be true because, as he further went on to say in that same letter to the Corinthians, he said, I saw him, meaning Jesus, even after the way I persecuted God's church, he still poured out his favor on me. I saw him, and so I preach this message. Now I want to be honest. This story of Paul's transition is a very dramatic story. I mean, a man bent on killing the followers of Jesus becomes a man just a couple of days later who is preaching Jesus so powerfully that nobody can refute anything he has to say. The truth of his message is so clear, they're all silent. And it's the sort of conversion story that can make make one wonder like like even me like is is my conversion story even worth telling in the face of what Paul went through and something else it makes me wonder sometimes why Jesus doesn't do this overpowering light from the sky and a voice telling us exactly what to do thing anymore but I've been thinking about these things over the last couple of weeks and Here's where I think Paul's story of transition intersects with ours. The reason that Paul came to faith in Jesus was because he came face to face with Jesus. Everything suddenly made sense when he realized that Jesus was alive and that sins could be forgiven and that Jesus cared deeply about the world in which we live. It was all evident when he first met Jesus. And I know that the story of my coming to a meaningful faith in Jesus also involved me coming face to face with Jesus. But it wasn't that I was struck down by a powerful light and a voice spoke to me out of heaven. It was that one man, one man named Arnie Book, lived his life in a way that he shined with the presence of Jesus to such a degree that I couldn't deny that what he was telling me about Jesus was true. There was something in his demeanor and in his character that reflected the reality of him being a brother of Jesus. The similarities between Jesus and Arnie were just enough for me to see they were from the same family. And like the Damascus Jews, I couldn't refute the reality of what Arnie told me and showed me about Jesus. And this has given me a clearer understanding of things. When we choose to follow Jesus, He fills us with His Spirit, and then He calls us His brother and his sister. And when we live our lives following Jesus, others can't help but see in our actions 
and in our demeanor, the family resemblance. They see Jesus, and that gives credibility to the opportunities that we are given to speak of the hope that lives within us. And Paul's radical transformation gives me hope for those that I love that seem so far away from ever following Jesus. Paul thought that everything that he was doing was exactly right. It was what he should be doing. And yet he saw Jesus. And he suddenly came to the realization that he needed to change his way of thinking about everything. And if he can be transformed by a face-to-face -face with Jesus, then anyone can be transformed by seeing the countenance of Jesus in you and in me. Now I know that Paul holds a huge space on our family tree. I know that his influence is grand in ways uh, theological and ecclesiastical and so forth. But his transformation story, which remember is given to us three times, tells us that there is hope. Hope for those that we love and long to see coming into an understanding of God's grace towards them through Jesus. And hope for you and me that we can be not only, as people often say now, they say, let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. We can also be the face of Jesus. And there's also hope for our world, which so drastically needs to change in ways that bring joy to the heart of God. And this hope can all come into reality when those in our very needy world come face to face with Jesus, our brother, as he shines his light into the world through us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage that tells us about Paul's transformation from a man who wanted nothing to do with your good news of salvation through Jesus to a man who couldn't help but spend the rest of his life traveling the world telling anyone who would listen about this good news message from you. And I pray that we will be people who follow Jesus in such a way that the world can't help but see the family resemblance in our lives and that we will be to those that we love and who so need to hear this good message, that we will be the ones who shine the light of Jesus into their lives in ways by the way we live, that they cannot help but see that the best thing they can do is to follow you. I pray this for all of us in Jesus' name. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.